Howdy, y'all. The Local Love Box is a way that you can continue to support local businesses and enjoy the best local food and beer without having to leave your house. Each Love Box contains raw ingredients for you to make those staple dinners from your favorite restaurants. Those ingredients are accompanied by step-by-step video instructions so you can cook alongside virtually with the chef who created that dish. Local Love Box has also hand-chosen craft beers to pair with that meal and a virtual tasting of that beer with the brewer who brewed it. Add on a Local Love Box t-shirt to your order and complete that ensemble and then have it delivered straight to your door. Or you can arrange to pick up the Love Box at that week's predetermined pickup location. Not a cook? That's okay. Your Love Box entree can be hot and ready to eat just like regular takeout when you select that option at checkout. Proceeds from the Local Love Box go to support Second Harvest Food Bank. Go to thelocallovebox.com and order your box today. Pickup and delivery available every Friday. Yes. Also, you already know that you can ease aches, pains, inflammation, and arthritis with topical CBD. Cosmetics Hemp Pain Cream provides immediate relief by combining the powerful regenerative properties of CBD with other active botanical ingredients. Each bottle of Cosmetic Hemp Pain Cream is packed with 400 milligrams of their patented water-soluble CBD, ensuring maximum absorption. Be kind to your skin and head over to Cosmedicated.com, C-A-U-S-E, Medicated.com. Use the South of Scruffy promo code SOS20 and get 20% off of your entire order. Okay, let's do the show. Well, welcome in, y'all. How we doing? My name is Ben Fields, South of Scruffy podcast. I am the host of this podcast, and I am glad you're here. Thanks for listening in. I appreciate it a lot. I've got Brian Allen on the show today. Brian Allen is the owner of Pop Fizz Production Company, makes commercials, television shows, you name it. The man does it. Uh, He's also a, a photographer by trade, and he is a wonderful human being on top of that. I can attest to that firsthand. He's a great man. He's a great leader. He's a great thinker, and I'm very grateful to know him. Uh, guys, thanks again for listening. We're getting kind of dried up on the bank, man, with uh, not a lot of people you know, willing to get out and, and sit six feet away from me and, and, and chat and do our talks. It's getting kind of kind of sparse. I think I'm going I'm to have to resort to dire measures. I don't know. I, I, I never wanted to do the, the Skype thing or the... You know, there's a lot of programs out there where you can remotely podcast. Uh, you know, I could send somebody a mic and then we watch each other on the screen and we chat, but I'm not into that. I want somebody to sit right across from me, warm body in the room, and I want to have a chat with them. That's kind of the magic of this for me, and it's what I enjoy about it. And um, I, I've never really wanted to go that route with the with the remote thing, so I'm going to try not to do that. But what that means is, I don't know, like... You guys might have to listen to me talk to my wife or, or my daughter because those are the only people that I think I'm allowed to see right now. You know, my wife's a physical therapist and she's extremely talented. She's not really in the arts and entertainment industry, but she'd be fascinating to talk to. My daughter, she's four. She'd be fascinating to talk to if I could get her to sit down and talk into a microphone for more than four seconds. Maybe that's the play. I might, that Maybe that's what I do. I think that's probably what I'm going to do is we're going to have Sarah Fields and, and Eloise Fields will be the next two guests. Might have to do a, a, a double 
uh, a double press card right there just uh, just because you know Eloise might not be able to give me an hour, which is what I really like to get. So maybe she gives me ten minutes and Sarah gives me fifty. But, but then what? Like well, the next week? Then what do I do? Oh, stress just thinking about it. Um, subscribe wherever you are listening. Uh, if that's Apple Podcasts, if that's Spotify, if that's Stitcher, hit the subscribe button and South of Scruffy Podcast will update you every time I release a new episode. Local Love Box, check that out, uh, the ad at the top. It's been a great success the last two weeks. Um, let's keep that up and keep the service industry people going while this is while they can't have people in their dining rooms. Brian Allen coming up. Uh, Brian Allen is a wonderful human being, and I have to applaud him for uh, the way that he's treating his people and everyone through this time, which must be very stressful for a business owner like himself, but he has good perspective on that and he's continuing to navigate it with grace. Uh, and I appreciate it. And I hope you guys do too. So let's do it. Let's, let's, uh, let's hear our conversation. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Allen. Oh, how you doing? I'm good. Are we recording? Yeah, let's do it. I see red, yep. red, uh, red, red lights, red LEDs on the machine. How you doing, man? How you been? Be live. Uh man, I'm doing good. Um, relative to the uh, current world circumstances, yeah. can't complain. I'm healthy. I haven't gotten sick that I know of. No one in my family has. Knock on wood. <clears throat> so yeah, we're surviving. Yeah, it's a lot about attitude right now. It seems like. Yeah. I think a, an entire world world reset is happening. It's kind of it's going to be interesting to see on the other side of all of this what what changes. What or do we just go right back to the way things were? That would be awesome. You know, I doubt that's going to happen. Got to think there's going to be some impact, right? Like working from home. I mean, just so so much has changed. It's so weird, surreal. But I'm no prognosticator. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it does. It seems like a new world. It seems like positivity is prevailing, hopefully. and Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> I think it's one of those times where, like, I've always had this feeling like that people, f- like, fundamentally believe, like, humanity is net good, like, left yeah. to its own devices. Yeah. It will get better. Or human or humanity is, like, just inherently bad and left to its own devices things will crumble yeah. right so what's that called what's it called when stuff wants to devolve into chaos i forget the word for it but yeah devolve into chaos i'll call it that yeah but i've always felt like humanity was basically good like we'll continue yeah. to get better and improve so maybe this is one of those times where you know through all of this everybody everybody gets a little better the, um, is, you're uh you're is this a, the biggest kind of Thing that you remember going through other than like 9-11 and but it felt uh, like the recession was kind of gradual so it didn't yeah, feel like everything yeah, definitely just the most acute yeah I, I can't think of anything in my lifetime that compares to this you know I, I remember in the 70s like when I was a little kid like the gas crisis and yeah, 73 and contra stuff yeah. and I remember other things but nothing that just has impacted the whole world and yeah. so acutely and mm-hmm. so like quickly and, and in this era when you just have all the data and 24 by 7 coverage of everything and social media it's it's just a really unique 
coming together of all the all the things around you know pretty much just a worldwide catastrophe so yeah i think about my grandparents and you know even their parents you know the greatest generation um all the war stuff and yeah. how much that changed the world and yeah. you know economies and of course of course the great depression and all that and how much how much that impacted people that went through it and yeah. how much it you know the ones that are still alive to you know not many of them are still but um you know the ones that i interacted with while they still were they the, it stuck with them they were yeah. you know you'd, you'd say something about you know gosh i'm yeah, man i'm i'm starving is it time for <laughs> lunch they're like you're not starving you don't know what starving <laughs> yeah. is yeah yeah i think that's true uh the, the world war war world war stuff had to be amazing you know i i guess my dad was in the vietnam era was he in the war no, you know, he actually had me. At, I may have kept him out of the war now that I think about it. Um, Look at you. So he was 19 when he had me. He would have probably been drafted. Yeah. Well, uh, where uh, where'd you guys grow up and all that? Um, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. My dad grew up um, in Virgilina, Virginia, right on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. Grew there's up. there's one of those, like a Texarkana, but, exactly. for, but for Virginia and North yep. Carolina? There is. Virgilina. <laughs> It's awesome. They were it tobacco dirty. farmers. I know it's got kind of a <laughs> sexual connotation. Yeah. But yeah, he tobacco he, he grew up on a farm, and I think uh, just as the day he graduated, he was out of there. Yeah, <laughs> moved to the big city of Lynchburg. Well, there was a, was there a university there at the time? In Lynchburg, yeah, um, you had Liberty Baptist College at the time. Mm. It's now Liberty University. Um, Jerry Falwell and his yeah. his. Uh, People. His thing there, his people. <laughs> it's grown into quite a quite an institution. Quite a, it's sort of like SCAD is to Savannah. I guess it's just sort of taken over. Really? So it bleeds into the, the town quite oh, a yeah. bit. Yeah, quite a bit. I was thinking about it today too. With uh, this morning, um, for this for for Knoxville being the size that it is, and though it is a fairly you know large city, it's more than just the University of Tennessee. But I was thinking about all the guests that I've had on the podcast that are here because of the university yeah. and that it has brought a lot of people that just stay. And so while it, you know, you can try to forget about it being here, it definitely bleeds into culture and it, yeah. it's definitely important for the people part. Yeah. hundred percent. So I mean, same deal in Lynchburg growing up. I think so. I think people come from pretty far and wide to go there. Yeah. Um, but when I, you know, when I was there, I mean, I haven't been there since 1985, my, my family's still there and whatnot, but, it certainly wasn't as big a part of the community. The last time I was home, though, like, you know, they have incredible facilities. They've really grown the footprint of the campus and, like, all the youth sports and all that kind of stuff take place in those facilities. So it's it's very integrated into that community now. So yeah. it's definitely different. So what was it, what was it uh, like growing up there? Small school, big school, kind of small um, town feel, I guess, right? Yeah, I, th- I think of Lynchburg as just a great place to grow up, yeah. um, raise a family. You know, you're in central Virginia. It's beautiful, absolutely gorgeous there. Um, I don't know how big Lynchburg is, probably a couple hundred thousand. Um, but you had just a good family, family life. You had lakes and, and lots of outdoor stuff happening. You get to the beach pretty quickly. You get to mountains. Um, just good values. Yeah, it feels like it's a, a Virginia's a state that has a lot of diversity, both topography wise, but it kind of feels like it rides that. 
it, it straddles being a, mm. a, a southern state and like a, a, a mid coast, yeah. like um, kind of it, it feels like it's as much Martha's Vineyard in some places as it is like, you know, South Carolina. Yeah, it, it is. A, like, it's a very diverse state that way. You know, I grew up in central Virginia, so sort of in the middle of it all. But northern Virginia is like the north. I mean, it's D.C. Yeah. and D.C. Yeah. suburbs, essentially. And then southeastern or southwestern Virginia would be kind of like rural Tennessee. Yeah, like rural Appalachia, yeah, right? Rural Appalachia, and you have kind of everything in between. And beaches, Newport News, yeah, all that kind of you stuff. Get the beach area. Um, so yeah, just a very diverse state. And I, I think where I grew up was sort of uh, central, you know, central Virginia, and sort of a mix of all of that, and not quite any of it. Um, kind of just, just a quiet peaceful existence in the middle of all that you know yeah so did your dad bring the farm life up with him to lynchburg <laughs> you know i was talking to somebody about this the other day he did a little bit you know always say he kind of left the farm but he, he he brought quite a bit with him at least in terms of like family gardening oh yeah we always had <clears throat> we always had a family garden that would feed the neighborhood you know that's cool uh, community garden. Oh, that was crazy. Had too much for just the family to eat. Way too much. You know? <sighs> That'd just be nice to have right now. Way too much. But yeah, I remember like early, some of my earliest like money making adventures was walking through the neighborhood with two five gallon buckets full of vegetables, you know, tomatoes and cucumbers and <laughs> zucchini and squash and selling it for a nickel a cucumber, a quarter a tomato. Oh, that's and I'd great. come home with 10 bucks in my pocket and I'd do it like Three or four days a week, you know. I mean, yeah, we just had so much stuff. Was that your like entrepreneurial uh, spirit? That's probably out? my start. Yeah, <laughs> and then at some point I ended up um, actually raised a money crop uh, of my own. I grew about an acre of Silver Queen corn every summer. Really? Yeah. So I would. I was old enough to like, um, you know, do the work myself. My dad helped me, but. I'd plant this acre. I'd have to till it all the time. I'd have to get out there and shoot crows and keep the squirrels from eating it all. But I'd, I'd grow an acre of corn, and then I'd run an ad in the paper. I'd sell it for, I think, like a dollar twenty-five a dozen or a dollar fifty a dozen. I'd take orders day before during the day. I'd get up the next morning, harvest however many dozen ears of corn I was selling that day, and people would pick it up on the way home. But I'd make like. 1500 bucks, 2000 bucks. This is in like early 80s. Yeah. It's good money, man. That is. That's that's not <laughs> my first car cost $1500, yeah. so I made enough in a summer to buy a car. So nobody your parents never had to tell you to get your ass out of bed and start working, right? You, you no. sounds like you kind of had it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of <laughs> had the work that. ethic. I had that in me. I think my, uh I mean, I just remember I was always up and at it working with my dad, working a lot in the garden, but back then like he just did everything himself, you know. He fixed his own cars, did your own plumbing. I mean, he, I just remember him like one time taking all the pipes out from under the house and cleaning all the sewage out. There's, he just did everything. Yeah. If the car needed to be fixed, yeah. he just fixed it, did his own brakes. So, was he a I was always guy? just his helper. Oh, yeah. So always, you learned a lot? Oh, yeah. I just did everything with him yeah. and gardening and working in the yard. Like, I, I remember I, I learned to mow the grass. We had, I don't know, we probably had a couple acres of grass and a lot big yard. And it's, I have pictures at like seven years old. I'm out there 
riding the lawnmower, mowing the grass. And I remember my son turned seven. I was trying to get him to do the same thing. My wife was like, hell no. He's like getting on a riding lawnmower. Are you crazy? I'm like, but look, here's a picture. I did it. No. Times are different. Not happening. Yeah. So uh, what did he do? What did your dad do for work? My dad was a surveyor, land surveyor. Oh, yeah. um, he had, he kind of worked his way up. I think he, he started out as a Rodman like the lowest level would be like a PA in the production yeah. world. What's and, that where you go put the rods into the ground when they find? Well, you, you nail pins in the ground, yeah. but really you're holding plumb bob. Like somebody, a rodman's like holding a plumb bob or something over a stake and the instrument man's looking through there. Yeah. And then there's like a, I don't know, the guy that's equivalent of the field producer. I forget what they call him. Uh, party party chief, I guess that's what they call oh, okay. him. So he kind of worked his way up from being a rodman to ultimately um, – partner in the company and owning the company and um it was a firm called uh, hurt and profit it's kind of funny name <laughs> that is it's like dewey cheatham and how yeah but that was the original partners charlie hurt and erskine profit and then my dad ended up being partners with them and i think you know essentially owned the company until he retired a few years ago so he got a job when he was 19, 19 years old and stayed right out of school yep. and stayed with the same company till the entire his entire life. He still, he still works with the companies. You know, he's, I think they created an employee stock ownership program. So the employees and other people, he kind of sold out to, but he still works for the company and he does mostly development now, developing property, cool subdivisions, things like that. So he's still at it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he'll be at it till days, days done. Yeah. He'll never, he'll never not work. It's just the way he is. Was your mom around too? Yeah, she was. Um, my parents got divorced when I was really young. I think I was five. They got married at like 18 and 17, had me, you know, just, <clears throat> I like to say I was a planned child. They they planned to carry a, a blanket to the drive-in theater that night, and the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> but the marriage didn't make it, um, but my parents, you know, they got divorced, and but they lived in the same town. They all lived in Lynchburg. I felt I could come and go as I pleased between the families. They always got along. We It's kind of weird as a kid. I just kind of thought of it like I had two Christmases and two birthdays and two everything. And if I had a sporting event, everybody was there. Um, I know it was a lot harder on them than, than I picture it. But it, it wasn't like some horrible divorce. It wasn't a traumatic thing in my life. That's great. Yeah. Because sometimes it goes the other way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Probably more times than not. So I've I've definitely always been grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so were you into sports and stuff in high school? Yeah, I was definitely into sports. Sports probably saved my life. As I understand it, I was kind of a a handful back in the day, <laughs> those early years. Um, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, I got into that. sports. I think my dad. He just kind of put me in everything. I played football, baseball, basketball, wrestled, ran track, um, kind of did it all. I, I think my earliest, the earliest stuff is I grew up in this neighborhood of boys. We just had all these boys and we'd rode motorcycles and climbed trees and did all that kind of stuff. But all of, all of us were into sports, um, you know, playing football and things like that. And we just had neighborhood battle royales i mean we just played all the time mm -hmm. my my yard was the baseball field i also had a basketball goal we played football in other yards 
We had boxing matches. We put on Olympics. Yeah. We'd, we'd take all the mattresses out of the house and build all the events, high jumps and long jumps, and put on a full Olympics for like two weeks in the summer. Just crazy stuff. Like My that. childhood was similar to that, and I wonder if that's still going to be a thing moving forward. I mean, you've got kids that are growing up now. Yeah. Are they facing it's the different. phone all day, or are they, you know— are they putting together Olympics in the backyard or a little of both? They're not uh, putting together Olympics in the backyard. It's definitely different. I'm, my kids are right in the middle of the heyday of youth sports. They're 10 and 14. And it's uh, it's it's just a whole different deal. Um, first of all, kids, for the most part, I mean, I'm obviously I'm generalizing here, but in, in general, parents don't just open the door at 7 o'clock in the morning and say, get your ass outside and call you at dinner. Yeah. You just go hang out in the neighborhood all day. That's kind yeah. of what we did. But yeah, me too. That doesn't happen. Um, everything's much more structured, much more organized. To to a fault, you know. My kids have. I mean, I was telling, talking to my wife about this the other day. My kids have access to like, not just their school sport. Then they have club sports. Right. And then within the club sports, you have private coaching and all this stuff. And the private coaching is by at. at at the minimum, former collegiate players. Right. In lots of cases, former professional players. Right. So like my son, he plays baseball as an example. I mean, he's being coached by former pro. Right. And then he's on a travel baseball team. Then he has school baseball. And it's year round. And times, in his case, he still plays three or four sports. But that'll have to stop soon. That's that's unheard of now. Like yeah. I played five sports growing up. You don't do that anymore. It's impossible. No, because each one takes so much time. Unless you're just some kind of incredible athlete. But most of the coaches now have an expectation. Once you get around 10 years old, you're just going to have to whittle it down. There's no other way to do it. Yeah, especially if you, if you you know, a baseball season is year-round for a lot of these kids yeah. now with travel stuff. Yeah. And, it, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to be serious about it. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of comes down to... when I was a kid. <clears throat> it kind of gets to where you're really just not going to be able to compete. Like I, I fought it for a long time. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I want my kids to play as many sports as they can and, you know, avoid injury. It, there's lots of great reasons to do that. But ultimately, like you just won't make the teams. Like you, The other kids will just be better. Mm-hmm. They've got private uh, professional coaches right. that, exactly. in that sport. So if you want like, to have that experience of being on your, I guess, school baseball team or your school whatever team – and you're not practicing as much as the other kids. Likelihood of you making the team get get pretty slim pretty fast. Sure. So did sports get you through college and all that? Did you do that? Did you um, do sports in college? Where'd you go to college? Kinda, kinda, not in an expected way anyway. So I grew up, like I said, playing all those sports, and uh, I was really a pretty good wrestler. It's probably my best um, best sport, the one I had the most opportunity to go to college and I got recruited by a bunch of uh, wrestling schools and had scholarships and whatnot but I just got to a point where I'd wrestled kind of year round all my life and cut weight and done all that stuff and I just wanted to go to school so I ended up um, kind of passing on all the scholarships and I looked at a bunch of schools um, some I would have had to wrestle to go to um, anyway long story short I just ended up Going to North Carolina State University in Raleigh, no athletic scholarship, um, just went there to go to school. And, uh, you know, fast forward a few years, I ended up, you know, playing all kinds of 
rec league, intramural sports, all yeah, that kind of fun. stuff. And I got, uh, I kind of got picked out playing basketball by like these cheerleader type people. They go around recruiting guys, and I was kind of that. I was this. I was built like a cheer male cheerleader. Mm. You know, I was strong, but not too big. So I strong enough to hold girls and do all that kind of stuff, but not so big that I couldn't tumble. So undersized football players, wrestlers, people, yeah. people in that mode kind of mm-hmm. work as male cheerleaders. So I got recruited to do that, and I ended up being a cheerleader at NC State. That's little, awesome. Little known fact that I don't tell many people. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I, th- I thought about that. Or I think about it when I go to the Tennessee basketball games, and I see these male cheerleaders who <laughs> – I don't want to say they look like they don't know what they're doing, but they obviously <laughs> hadn't been doing it their whole lives. I mean, there right, aren't, there right. weren't male cheerleaders at my high school, right, right. and it seems like they are crossover athletes from other sports. Yeah. And you know the what what is it a toss to hands where you throw mm-hmm. have to throw one toss of the cheerleaders up. up in the air catch and catch them? The yeah, yeah, catch them by the feet at your shoulders. Like, they're, they're, <clears throat> I'm sure you can practice as much as you want to learn how to do that. But some people that are former football players can probably do that on the first try. You know? Yeah, it's uh, it's really a weird sport. Um, but then you got to be able to do a standing back tuck too, yeah. right? And you got to be able to tumble, and you got to yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. You got to be a pretty versatile athlete. Um, it's I don't want to spend a ton of time on the sport of cheerleading, but it's it's of all the sports I've ever been involved in, is absolutely the hardest. Sport. Really? Yeah. yeah. Just all around wear and tear on your body. It's year round sport at a collegiate level. Mm-hmm cheer for football, basketball, and you have your own national championships in the sport of cheerleading, uh, which is really brutal. Um, and you don't have any, at least in our, in our program, it's not like you had 10 extra people there. So you, there's really no one to back you up. So yeah. if you got a little ding on your shoulder, crank your ankle, whatever, yeah. you're, you're going to just kind of work through it. So. Right. Do you think gymnastics is a good thing for kids to do? Oh, yes, absolutely. You think it's the best thing for kids to do? I think it's one of the best things you could have your kids do. Both of my kids did it from the time they were two years old to, well, both of them kind of got out around 10 years old. Um, just in terms of like air sense and balance and coordination yeah, and spatial body awareness, awareness and, and strength, flexibility, just all around. It's an incredible sport. Um but it's it's sort of a weird thing. It, I don't. It's kind of driven somewhat by the economy of gyms, or the business model of gyms, and some by I think the kind of the governing body of USA Gymnastics. But at least in our market, a, a school, I mean a, a marketplace like Knoxville, gen, like young gymnasts, kind of you kind of end up having to get into like the competition side of it all. Yeah. Like you could take a rec class, just a recreational class kind of once a week. Mm-hmm. But if you're a skilled kid or you want to do more, you end up having to be on the competition team. Right. You can't just and be halfway no, serious nothing, about it. Yeah. There's not much in between. So then you get in the competition and that's. And now you're driven, travel baseball again. <laughs> yeah. It's driven by USA Gymnastics, <laughs> whose goal is not for every kid in America to gain those benefits we just talked about. It's to create uh, the best Olympic team every four years right so all the programs are sort of pushed down and you know the ultimately i just see all these kids drop out right around puberty or a few years before they just leave the sport because it becomes well like i mean my daughter at eight nine ten years old it's five days a week four hours a day year round they want you to homeschool yeah and there's just not many kids that can do that And, and i don't personally don't think it's the healthiest thing so right my kids got out of the sport, but for me, um, 
you know, I think they got everything out of it that I'd hoped, you know, those, I'd say from like five to eight, four to eight, that range. If you have kids in gymnastics, you probably couldn't do anything better. It's just a fundamental building block for the body. Yeah. That's, that's how I've always felt about it. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that reinforced because I'm about to start that with my kids. (laughs) It's great. And full disclosure, I used to own a company that owned 17 gyms, (laughs) cheerleading and gymnastics gyms. So, you know, I have a little more insight into the whole business side of it. And maybe created part of the problem. So (laughs) I can't uh, beat up on it too badly. Um, So what did you do at at NC State for for, uh, for your field of study? Well, I uh, studied engineering. Um, What kind? Electrical. Really electrical and computer engineering. Electrical engineering, you can go all kinds of different ways. But I was really into like um, more of the computer side of things and ultimately into like control systems and robotics and um, automated processes. And that's cool. Ultimately ended up getting a master's in kind of an integrated program called integrated systems engineering. Uh, which was sort of like some industrial and electrical and mechanical, but it was really all around manufacturing processes and automating those and yeah. creating efficiencies and all that kind of stuff. Well, it sounds like you had a really well-rounded engin- understanding of all the different disciplines in engineering Yeah, for that. Yeah. I mean, I th- for me, I think engineering, the, the basic thing you learn in edu- engineering education is problem solving, yeah. right? It's A, you, you're put through such stress you kind of come out of engineering like sort of feeling like there's nothing you can't figure out and like yeah. no problem you can't solve. There's a solution for everything. Right. And then, so you kind of have that confidence that I can just figure things out. Right. And then secondly, you do kind of have a logical problem solving approach to things, you know? Yeah. I think the knock with engineers is that there's too much of that, right? There's yeah. not enough personality. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's too much that, you yeah, know, there's a lot of that. The, the, <clears throat> the cup isn't half empty or half full. It's twice as big as it needs to be. <laughs> That's right. Oh, there's so many engineering jokes. Yeah. They're, they're out there. I think I was a pretty, a pretty atypical. Yeah. It engineer. seems like it. Yeah. It, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't look, I don't look at you and think I, I would have never known that had you not told yeah, me, yeah. you know, from now, your personality. now I'm sort of an atypical, um, I guess, uh, production guy I, I have this whole background this whole history and in, in that world but i run a production company by day and most people know me in that world are like what you're an engineer like oh, yeah I so don't understand so happening. how'd you what, what was the path like to get to, <laughs> to get from engineering to owning a production company well that's so, a long story what'd um, you do after college well after college i moved actually moved to knoxville straight straight out of college uh, straight out of my master's program and I worked out at Oak Ridge for uh, Oak Ridge National Lab for um, about seven or eight years. What, Some, what was that about? What uh, was your that job? Was, I was just a I was just a grunt engineer, problem solver guy working on <laughs> projects. Um, at first, uh, I went to Y twelve, and I was in this program to kind of understand the whole manufacturing process out there, and um, kind of like a fellows program sort of thing. And no sooner I had to have a Q clearance, top secret clearance to be there. And that took like 18 months. Really? Yeah. And then like, as soon as my Q clearance came through, we had some sort of, uh, incident, let's call it out there. <laughs> and the Y12 plant sort of got shut down. Oh no. So I really never got to do that program. I ended up, uh, instead kind of being moved over to X10, which is Oak Ridge national lab. So Y12 got shut down completely. Yeah. Well, the processes got shut down. So, so there's some, uh, 
some nu- nuclear waste uh, leaking out of that place. Or uh, it wasn't anything like that. It was just a protocol issue, but yeah, yeah it became a big deal. So yeah, then so I went over changed. to the lab and yeah. uh, just did more like actual applied engineering. So we we worked on all kinds of projects um, from uh, automating the control of electron microscopes over like very early internet protocol. Oh wow, kind of stuff to. Um, Probably my favorite work was a program called Work for Others, where I guess the the government had agreed that we could take technology that was born in the lab and transfer it into the private sector if there wasn't a private sector solution. Oh, cool! Um, you know, the labs aren't in the business of putting private company competing with private companies. So, but, is ORNL completely publicly funded? Um, no, no, it's it's uh, a DOE. Um, you know, government funded. Right. I think it's a, maybe it's a government, maybe it's a partnership because it's managed by, uh, it was Lockheed Martin and yeah, I remember other Lockheed companies Martin. back then, but now it's UT and Battelle have a partnership managing the lab. But I think the funds primarily come from DOE. But you guys so, were getting to interface with the private sector then? Yeah. yeah like uh, we worked with the textiles industry that was under a lot of pressure at the time and just white flight stuff and stuff like factories moving out of towns. And yeah. Yeah. We're just trying to keep that business alive. And so we were helping, you know, gray goods manufacturing you know, people who are making the raw material inspect it using all kinds of sensor technology that was born in the lab. And another one, we were using these vision systems to inspect, you know, high speed uh, printing of like sheets and things like that. Just she- just yards and yards of fabric flying by at super fast speeds. We could inspect that stuff with, visions yeah. uh, system capabilities that oh, only cool. the lab had access to. I don't think it all ultimately really helped the industry. Seems like it's moved largely abroad now, but maybe we slowed it down a little bit, but yeah, that kind of work was, I really enjoyed that. Um, did, did you like that? Yeah. It felt like you were helping. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other cool thing about the lab was you could just like, you could just wake up on any given day and say, mm, man, I want to learn about plasma physics today. And, get your phone book out and somebody on that campus would be a world renowned expert in that. And you could just go say, Hey, can I have lunch with you? And now they might blow your brains uh, talking about their specialty, but um, just, just access to lots and lots of brilliant people. Um, Yeah. That was a great time. Did you work for some pretty, pretty brilliant people? I did. Yeah. I I had really good. I had a really good experience there. Yeah. a few exceptions, but for most, most of it, um, you know, I, I, yeah. Why did it end? Well, it ended because, um, maybe the flip side of all of that is, you know, you're a government employee and let's say me and you work for the same department. I might work 10 times as hard as you, but at the end of the day, you're going to get the same raise. I'm going to get the same raise. You know, just the whole government employee kind of thing was pretty frustrating for someone like me who's pretty driven and competitive and, you know, motivated. And, um, so there was that part of it. And then I took a sabbatical, um, for about a, a little over a year and worked on a project with this new, uh, internet thing that was happening. You may have heard of it. Um, heard of the internet anyway. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we took, um, we took some technology and it was, it was being delivered. Uh, this information was being delivered by satellite to doctors' offices using all this crazy kind of old school technology, and moved that to the internet. And uh, 
that got me sort of out of the lab and into the private sector. So you were working on your sabbatical? Yeah. Yeah. I took a sabbatical to go do this, this opportunity. And then, um, it was, uh, you went back for a short while, I bet. Right. Yeah. Medical (laughs) information project. But anyway, when that ended, I went back to the lab and then the guy that I worked for there ultimately landed at, at HGTV as their CIO. And he, uh, called me one day and said, Hey, how about you come build a web hosting operation for, um, at the time the EW scripts company, which owned HGTV and a bunch of newspapers and television stations. They decided they want to wanted to centralize the web hosting of all those properties. And, uh, I was brought in to do that or had the opportunity. So I left the lab and did that. So was it the experience that you got on your sabbatical working for the medical information company that, that was the draw then to coming to, uh, EW scripts or was it the, the lab side? I guess what I'm asking is, was it the, the, the knowledge that you gained on the sabbatical? Was that what kind of catapulted you into the next thing because i feel like <clears throat> anybody who goes on a sabbatical would be would be in uh would be uh really you know you come back from your sabbatical and would work for a short time and say man <laughs> what i was doing on that sabbatical <laughs> was, was a lot, a lot better fun. than this. Yeah. 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 i was a combination of both for sure i mean we worked really hard on that but the the internet stuff you know the servers i really was drawn to the the technology behind it. I wasn't really a programmer. I was more on the infrastructure side. And so I guess having the opportunity to take that knowledge and we were just prototyping a, a, um, an application at the time, but, and just say, Hey, we, we, we want you to build a true production web hosting environment for this big media company. So this seemed like a great opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. So this was... Mind like, you, I had no idea how to do it. This is going to be a common theme. <laughs> throughout your story? <laughs> throughout. I've noticed it's a common theme for a lot of your guests. They're like, uh, yeah, I really didn't know how to do that at all. But somebody asked me if I could, and I said yes. Yeah. And I fucking figured it out. Yeah. That's kind of what that's I what did. It, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. Um, so is this when like HGTV.com was, yeah. was launching, and so they needed infrastructure behind it to hold all of it? Yeah. At the time, basically all of the scripts properties, you know, you had all these newspapers. I think they had 35 or 40 newspapers. They had all these television affiliates. They had HGTV was the only cable network at the time. But basically everybody, every every little property ran their own little website mm. and so might, they wanted to it standardize might be on a it? computer under some guy's desk over here yeah. and something more legit over there, just depending on what the resources were at each property. And basically, as the story was told me, they owned the Naples News and a bunch of the board members of EW Scripts at the time had vacations properties down in Naples <laughs> and the damn server kept crashing. They couldn't they couldn't get their, uh, you know, um reports on weather and stuff where they're, they're like, this has got to stop. Really? <laughs> we got to fix this. <laughs> My vacation home. I can't tell what the tides are doing, yeah. you know, whatever. Oh, it's crazy. So they're like, well, we, we should be able to do this better. We've got this property in Knoxville that runs a cable network 24 hours a day. Surely God, they can run a website. So I think in, they hired me and then three or four months later, we moved like 800 domains under one web hosting operation overnight. And Wow. From there, it grew. Yeah, I, I remember I was I had like I was able to hire like six people, and I think our first budget for capital was like two hundred and fifty grand. So we bought all these <laughs> servers and set up a 
router and a firewall and kind of built this operation in kind of a closet. And then, uh, you know, 15 years later, I, I was um, the SVP of IT operations for the whole company and ran all of our data centers and had like 6,000 servers under our under our control. I had like 150 employees and um, ran everything from web hosting to all the back office stuff and custom applications we'd build in-house. And Sounds a lot like your dad's trip. Like Really? St- yeah. Started, started at the bottom and... Yeah, be careful what you give yeah. these Allens. They might end up yeah. taking over. Running the show. No, it was a great... It really was a great run out there, a great time. And How did, long did it take you to get up to SVP? 15... Well, I guess I was an SVP for five or six years. So yeah. About 10 years, probably. That's awesome. Low man grunt to run in a pretty decent organization. I mean, I... I always think of it as my, um, this is basically my MBA. Right. I basically got to build yeah. a company within a company. Yep. I got and get to paid build for a brand. It. I got to build a culture. I got to build a team. I got to hire everybody, build all the job descriptions, build the pay scale. Like I really kind of created a company within that company and flew under the radar for probably 10 years. Until somebody's like, hold on, there's this group down there in Knoxville that's spending like $50 million a year. What's going on? Maybe we should look at them. Yeah. That, the that, last five years weren't as fun. <laughs> yeah. It seems like that's, uh, that, that that's a byproduct of, of success is scrutiny. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. once you once you get big enough, yeah. then, then people start noticing. It's really you. good. It's like, wow, that guy, that guy's built a really, really good operation. We need to, we need to look into that. We need to help him make decisions. Oh, sure. We need to scrutinize every decision he makes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what the sense last, does that make? Come on. The last bit of it, I remember just meeting after meeting after meeting every day and a lot of basically every decision, every penny you want to spend being scrutinized, everybody you wanted to hire. You know, you're being too good to your people. You can't be that good to everybody. You know, just all kinds of weird corporate stuff started happening. But, so so yeah. how did it how did it end over there? Fifteen years of well, uh, I think I was, let's see, the official uh, thing was I was, my job was eliminated. I wasn't fired. Oh, my job good. was eliminated. Huh. It's a very fine line. Yeah. Feels a lot like you're fired. It, it sure it does. <laughs> Feels a lot like an offer you can't refuse. Oh, sure. Yeah. So essentially I was fired. Um, Did they give you one of those offers you can't refuse? They gave me... Uh, Literally, offer I couldn't refuse. What, yeah. what did what did they? Uh, it, I mean, was it just like a clean break, or did they have a, a plan in place for eliminating your job? Or oh, what? that's a good question. So, yeah, funny story is, uh, you know, we had these annual bonuses and stuff over there, and you had to have all these objectives for the year. So, one of my objectives, my bonus objectives that year prior, was to create a succession plan for my for myself for yourself, <laughs> which I did gladly. <laughs> And then I actually got to see it implemented a year later. (laughs) So uh, note to all you guys out there, if you're ever asked to create a succession plan as one of your, one of your goals for the year, let this be a little red flag that uh, could be the end of the road. (laughs) Uh, It's funny to look back on, but it was a real kick in the pants. I mean, I was always, uh, I feel like pretty successful at kind of things I tried and whatever I put my heart into. And I mean, I put my heart and soul into that company for 15 years and to just suddenly be told, um, yeah, thank you for your services. We don't really need you anymore. Yeah. Good luck. Now, you know, all that said, they treated me really well. They gave me a great package on the way out. And, Good. 
I mean, just really took care of me. And there, there was, you know, the company had gone through a, uh, we had, we'd split the EW Scripps company into two companies. And I was actually an EW Scripps employee out of Cincinnati, even though I, I worked here and most of my people were here. Was that all the print side? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the headquarters for the whole company. But what happened is Scripps uh, HGTV grew into Scripps Networks, mm-hmm. had multiple networks, food, DIY, Great American Country, cooking, travel channel. Travel channel. Um, and so Wall Street was still kind of looking at the company like a newspaper company. Right. But it had really become Scripps a, Networks Interactive. Scripps Networks <laughs> and some newspapers. Right. Yeah. So they basically made this decision to split the company into two companies, form Scripps Networks Interactive. EW Scripps retained the kind of the newspaper company. Were they traded separately or yeah. were they both public companies? That was companies? a big part of it yeah. was to create an, you know, so the Wall Street would treat the newspaper company yeah. like a newspaper company and create the, the uh, cable network company like a cable network. So gotcha. at that time, I, I did move from EW Scripps to Scripps Networks and there was definitely some overlap with my role and other people's roles. So it wasn't entirely unfounded that there was duplication in, in the effort, but I would have kept me and fired the other people. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, so it, it feels like you fell victim to something that I see sometimes over there, which is, you know, a bit of a danger to getting, you know, promoted and working your way up the corporate ladder in Knoxville, Tennessee at a major corporation like that, that's traded publicly on wall street is if you get high enough, there's not a lateral move that you can make if you have to yeah. leave and still stay here, you know, yeah. you got to move somewhere else to a bigger market. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I, I ran into that firsthand. I think uh, Scripps now Discovery in this marketplace is probably the top of the food chain for a lot of careers. You know, you're mm-hmm. gonna, you're, you're, you know, and they're having to compete for people all over the country, so they have to yeah. pay to get people from New York and LA to come live here. So you know, you're gonna be priced, whatever role. I don't care if you're in accounting, finance, or engineering, or whatever. You're probably being paid at or above the market for whatever you're doing. I think there's a lot of layoffs have started happening over there and stuff after the discovery acquisition. I think a lot of people are running into that, but I ran into it. You know, I had to decide, do I want to move to another market and keep doing this? Or do I want to scratch this other itch, which I, you know, I'd been developing this idea of leaving and being a photographer, kind of doing something creative uh, for a while. So they sort of called my bluff. And then ultimately, um, I did look around and contemplate all that, but ultimately decided that I would uh, try to cr- scratch the creative itch. Yeah, I, I spent about a year, maybe 18 months or so, a year, 18 months, just freelancing as a photographer. Cool. Shooting what kind of stuff? Um, mostly commercial work for agencies. I'd, I marketed myself all over the Southeast, and I'd shoot for agencies and I did a lot of work here locally for an agency called Design Sensory, yeah. <clears throat> who are now uh, the partners that started Design Sensory and now my partners in Pop Fizz. But um, yeah, as I was doing that, I just started, uh, I guess the marketplace was changing and I'm just, you know, I'm always trying to figure out like what kind of business can I build in this market that kind of fits all these things? Is it something I'm really good at, something I'm really passionate about? a market and a market exists. When those three things come together, you kind of have a viable business. So I was, I was looking at sort of photography as a business kind of not meeting those needs. Um, With the 
which ones? I mean, did really it was the not market, viable? Really, the market yeah. pressures. Like, I didn't see it as a viable market um, marketplace, at least in this market in Knoxville. And uh, I was already seeing video production. Like, I don't know. I guess my re- like people started asking me uh, instead of asking me to go take pictures and then while you're there, like, can you shoot a little video on this flip thing for whatever? To like. Hey, we really need video. And while you're there, could you shoot some stills? Right. So you saw the marketplace changing? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'd started working with agencies in bigger markets. And a lot of the agencies had like a production arm or or whatever. So, yeah, I definitely. And I'd started shooting some video myself. with When the Canon 5D Mark IV came out, I, I started shooting music videos and, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, at some point, the idea of maybe creating a a production I don't I didn't even really think of it as a production company. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just knew I needed to expand my services to include video. And then once you once you make that leap, video is not a one man game. Right. Like it, it takes a team. Yeah, it does. So then you start saying, Oh, well, I need a team. Well next thing you know you've you're now a production entity at least. Yeah. So So what was kind of the nuts and bolts of starting it? You said that the partners at Design Sensory helped you with pop fizz or, or partnered with you to start pop fizz. Yeah, I was working, I was doing a good bit of photography with them. So <clears throat> we had a good relationship. And, uh, like I said, I, I was looking at other agencies and they were doing more in the way of video production. Design sensory was no, some of these other agencies oh. in bigger markets. Okay. And so I was being exposed to that. I didn't really, didn't really understand why design sensory didn't do it. So I just asked them one day, I'm like, well, why don't you guys have a production arm or whatever? And they were like, well, we really want to, but the market's probably too small. We don't have enough business. It's not quite there. And we don't know the right person to do it. We don't know how to do it. So that all happened. And then right around the same time I had gone, I had to get an MRI on my knee or something. So I went to KOC and they sent me to uh, like an MRI company to get the MRI and then as I remembered on the way out, I had to like sign some paperwork that said that where I acknowledged that the MRI company was actually owned by the KOC doctors. Wholly owned by the doctors. And I was like, Hmm, <laughs> I see what's happening here. And then anyway, I had literally just had this idea of like, what if I go back to design sensory and say, I have this idea. How about I start a production company and you guys can be my partners and I can do all of your work. And if you don't have enough work to keep me busy, I'll, work for other agencies and direct to brands. And, and they said, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Low risk for them. Right. Expanded their capabilities. I mean, it was, a, it was kind of an ideal partnership. Um, and it really helped, you know, me grow the, uh, pop fizz, what is now pop fizz. When was that? Oh uh, man, s- seven or eight years ago now. Can't so remember. you started just, just you? Um, well, Almost just me. Uh, Brent Collier was working with me quite a bit as a freelancer. Another Virginian. Another Virginian. <laughs> uh, you got to have him on the show sometime. I know. I need to. Uh, so he came on board immediately. And then I think pretty quickly I brought on uh, Cody and then Kristen Majney, who's like our you know, producer extraordinaire. Um, She's going to do what your dad did, which is get a job yeah. right out of school and She's retire from definitely there. Definitely going to own this company when it's done. <laughs> definitely. Uh, so yeah, we had a little three or four man thiefdom there for a while. Yeah. 
But yeah, so I mean, having a relationship with an agency though gave me a pipeline of work. I didn't have to go out and beat the doors down every right. day to get the next job like a right. freelancer. So we, they were they were selling, just adding our our services onto their with the relationships they already had. And so it was the idea there that you you know kind of kind of fill up that pipeline of work and then still have some human resources left over yeah. to go make some more stuff for clients that are outside of that exactly pipeline. exactly. Yeah. It sounds we, smart. <clears throat> well, I don't know anybody else lucky. who's done anything like that, Probably but it sounds lucky. smart. You know, it's, I don't know how smart it was. It's a lot of it's born out of necessity. You're just trying to figure out how to survive and how to hustle. And I guess I've always been pretty, I've, a, a, I've, I just like partnering with people. I've never really enjoyed being a one man band. I like, I like partnering. I like working as a team. You know, my athletic background we talked about, it. I'm, I'm yeah. like a team sport kind of guy. Yeah. I think that's what I love about production. It's like the ultimate team sport, you know? It so, really is. Yeah. But, you know, I noticed I noticed something that was interesting when I started working with you, and that's that you didn't do it like anybody I'd ever seen do it before. And the first thing I thought was that was wrong. You know? <laughs> Just because it wasn't the it wasn't industry standard, you know, yeah. stuff that you've seen around, but you kind of in, engineered um, a company uh, with capabilities and, and people um, to kind of do work in a new way that seems to be to be working. Hmm. That's how I, that's how I read it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I, it's it's kind of funny. We definitely have a company now that certainly has a has a culture and has a vibe and has a you know, a service delivery model and a brand promise and all of those things. And at some level I've cultivated that and helped, helped that come to be. But I always tell people it's sort of like if you owned Coke, but didn't really know the formula to the recipe. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I feel about our company. I mean, really? I just, I just hired a bunch of really good people and got out of their way and just tried to think about production and, in a logical way. And I really just use kind of my engineering background. I ran software development and operations and it's, it's just similar in a lot of ways. So I don't, I didn't know anything about production. I've never been on another set. I've never been on any other than shooting for shooting stills on some movie sets and things. Um, so it wasn't like I, I started out to just do something radically different. I just, I just tried to go at production the way, that made sense to me, you know, and then along the way, um, you know, we, or I should say, I guess I very intentionally hired people that did know what to do like yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's like, well, I, we probably should hire some people that actually know how to do this stuff. Right. And I, feel I think like the magic has been like bringing you and Cody into a mix with other people like, like we have these film school guys like yourself mm -hmm. who are classically trained, been on hundreds of sets, mm -hmm. know how it's done in the industry with just a bunch of renegade running gun guys and kind of blending those two worlds together. It, um, and, and I think getting the right people that didn't have a lot of ego around that, mm -hmm. you know, there's a little friendly banter and maybe yeah. at times some contention. But out of that, you know, I've just tried to foster this environment like let's just figure out what, what's best from the old way of doing things and maybe a new way of doing things or thinking outside of the box. Yeah. It's a meritocracy of, yeah. of both your, your ideas. And then, yeah. you know. and you know, I've spent a lot of time on the customer side of services. 
So you have an ability to think about it from the client's perspective. Yeah, I think that's that's really what I do for the company. I think that's right. That's where our culture comes from. It's like it's pretty simple. Like treat other people like you'd want to be treated. Yeah. Um, And so that's kind of what it's kind of what we do. So whenever whenever it gets to like this way versus that way, or this tool versus that tool, or this mindset versus that mindset, I'm like. I don't really care how it's done or how other people do it. Like what works best for our clients. Right. Right. And that seems to work, you know? Well, you, you have a lot of perspectives that I really respect a lot. And and one of the things that you said one time um, that really made a mark on me and it made me just respect the the hell out of you even more is we were on a, we were on a shoot in, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina for love it or list it with David and Hillary. And Mm. on our pre-light day, you 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 stood up at at lunch, I think it was, and talked to the whole crew. You addressed the whole crew as the director, and said, "You know, guys, the work here is very important, but I also want us to enjoy ourselves. I want us to treat our clients right. Um, if if our clients don't have a good time, if the lowest PA on the totem pole doesn't have a good time, then we failed here. Right. Everybody needs to, you know, enjoy <clears throat> it, treat each other with respect, and the good work will be will will." come with that. And, and that kind of, I don't know, that wasn't the old school, that wasn't the old school model that I, that I had seen what growing up in the film business, it was the work is the most important thing in the world. And if you have to yell at somebody to get it done, then, then that's what has to get done. And, Mm. and I really think that, I really think that you're, that the way that you described in that meeting, um, is right now. Yeah. It may not have been the way that people did things 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I hear that all the time. I just don't understand it. I guess maybe you guys should go on other sets. Although I got to think that's changing across it has the to. board. I mean, there's just no way you can, maybe in some, maybe in LA and New York, but I, my clients, well, I mean, I get it all the time from our clients. They hire us because it's really stupid, but we're just fucking nice. Yeah. Like we're just nice to each other and yeah. nice to people and you can have a good time and you can do the work. But anyway, I mean, I, I just look at it like this is not rocket science what we're doing. A lot of people can do the work, right? But can you do the work in a way that your client enjoys that experience? Uh, you know, we have this this model of like check the box production. So they can just check the box. They know we're going to be buttoned up. We're not yeah. going to melt down on set. We're going to deliver things on time. The quality is going to be great. All the boxes are going to be checked and then go babysit someone else. And if they happen to babysit someone else and we're like super easy to engage with through the whole life cycle, then they'll call us again. And they yeah. do, they keep calling us. So I don't know, but I mean, part of like the production itself to me, that's again, I wouldn't even have, I, would, I know I would never say like the lowest PA on the totem. Like I just don't even view it that way. Yeah. To me, it's a team. Mm-hmm. Everybody on that team has a role. I don't care if you're a PA or a director. It takes that whole team to make it work. Right. I could I could crush it, but if some if a PA is having a bad day and they say something, you know, untowardy to to our client or something, it's I may as well have said it. It's, right. It's I see just, what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody has that role. Everybody needs to be respected and feel like they're part of the team. And I don't know. I just don't. I just don't buy into all the hierarchy and, you know, I just always say like, check your egos at the door, you know, we're a team and in our company, you know, we play, 
we all play different roles on different days. Like yep. one day I might be the director. The other day I'm just running a camera. I may be an AC one day. You may be a grip one day, a director the next, the AD yeah. the next. I mean, and and that's intentional. A, I want people to have that diversity, but B, I, I want people to play different roles, be in charge and be not in charge kind of thing and yeah. see what that feels And not like. have an ego about it. And I think what you said uh, about everybody can do the work, I, I think that used to not be the case. I think it was, you know, more of a kind of a specialized industry, especially in the film days. Yeah. Um, the barrier to entry is a lot lower now. And so the competition wasn't as, as much then. Yeah. And I think that's probably where a lot of the ego may have come from. It's yeah, like, I can, you true. know, if it, it find somebody else to do it this well, then yeah. well, now that's a lot easier than yeah. it used to be. And so wouldn't put that dare out there too. Often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm being a little flippant about that. Obviously I think we do great work and, um, but I just don't think, I think if you're just competing on the quality of your work, um, I don't know, at least in our marketplace, there there are a handful of other companies who I would say do work on par with us. I, I wouldn't right. I wouldn't say we do, you know, head and shoulders better work than lock and key or draft or anyone else and hopefully they wouldn't say the same thing about us. But we're gonna compete on our culture, our vibe, our professionalism. Our team, our, I mean, yeah. our whole business model around we hire our employees. We have 13 full-time people. The same people are showing up. It's relationship-based. Um, you know, we don't really market. Most all of our work just comes from relationships and, uh, you know, hopefully saying what we're going to do and doing what we say and at least delivering, if not over-delivering, on the promises we make. So, I'm proud to be a part of it, and I appreciate you yeah. having me as a part of it. and. Uh, especially going going through this and uh, the you know this era that we're going through and watching how you're treating your employees and yeah. everybody else, I really appreciate it well, a I lot. Appreciate that. And you, um, uh, you, I mean, I don't. You've been a big, big part of this company. I'd be remiss thanks, if I didn't like acknowledge that sitting here in front of you. Thank you. You definitely. Uh, I don't even know how to say it. Uh, you know, I, we, I we would have probably it. would have probably been off in a ditch by now. Like it has taken oh. this yin and yang of like people who know what they're doing, people who didn't know what they're doing, creating this culture. But it's not just that part. It's like, I mean, we just have all these, you have a great personality. You just bring this great vibe to the company. And thanks, man. You've helped us find the right people. And so anyway, thanks for all of your impact well, on thanks. the company. I'm very happy yeah. to, and very proud to be a part of it. I appreciate Good. it. I want to ask you about one more thing. All right. Uh, didn't you DP a feature film? Joseph? <laughs> yes, I did. I did. That was, uh, that was another big, really big moment, I guess, in my life, certainly. And I think in sort of how Pop Fizz has evolved, I guess we were probably a year, year, maybe two years into Pop Fizz. And we were doing fine, but I, I did get this opportunity. I won't bore people with the whole history, but I did get an opportunity to go off and DP a, a legit feature film. I mean, I thought it was going to be like a, I don't know, summer project kind of thing. And I showed up and it's like, holy shit, it's 150 person set and legitimate actors. And um, did you, did you get like, some imposter Whoa. syndrome? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, we were having like script read, just the whole process of getting ready for the, I didn't know any of it. Fortunately, we had this AD named first AD named Dusty Ducat Ducats from, and he'd done all kinds of stuff. And he, 
He could have like made us miserable, made us look like fools. Instead, he took us under his wing and taught us how to make a movie. What a guy. Yeah, he's incredible. So, yeah, I just learned so much in that um, that whole process. We we only had a couple weeks of pre-pro. And this is a period piece, you know, big ensemble cast. Oh, man. On location every day. and That the, stuff can be hard to do right, the period oh, stuff. so hard. Yeah. And just so, like, the t- the clock, like having to work to a clock on a, I mean, you know, union clock with yeah. all the time that gets chewed up in wardrobe. Hair and makeup. Hair and wardrobe, makeup. Just, yeah. So anyway, that ended up shooting, I think it was 20, 24 days or something like that wow. to shoot the feature. But it was trial by fire, man. I just, I'd, I'd got to storyboard and go through, like, I don't know, the first... 20 pages of something or so of the script before we started shooting and we were shooting like eight and eight and an eighth or something a day. Just crazy pace. Screaming through it. Just screaming through. I didn't, you know, I'm going to figure out how to do coverage on the fly. I, I didn't know any of this, but we faked it like, like always. And, um, I think created a pretty, a pretty film, really, really good film. Does it have distribution? Is it out there? It's out there. It was distributed on, DVD through Walmart and worldwide and a bunch of film festivals. We actually won a, won a bunch of awards at film festivals. One Tennessee when the Tennessee theater won like the best film one year. Um, but I think, yeah, I was just going to say the main thing out of that, just when I came back to pop fizz and commercial production, which we primarily do um, after being on a set like that and having to come up with storyboards and shot lists, literally, shoot for 14 hours, come and stay up another five or six hours working that stuff out and get up and hit it the next morning for four weeks in a row. Um, I, w- I really wasn't intimidated by anything we were doing at that point. You know, I, I really just came back sort of like, so after you with got this back, confidence you, that we yeah. could do really whatever we wanted to do. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid at a production level or at a business level like to, to go out and sell our capabilities at that point in a different way. So that was like your MFA and you got your MBA. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now you got your MFA. That's a good way to look at it. Trial yeah, by fire. Great, great experience too. I mean, just met some incredible people and, you know, I think a lot of us in this industry would, would you know, just yearn to do something like that. And I got that opportunity uh, quite early and quite by chance and, and you made good on it you did a good job you didn't get fired <laughs> i did not get fired no i actually had like at the end of that experience the two principal actors um uh, one guy one's named boris mcgyver you know he's been in films with scorsese he's been in lincoln he's been in house of cards there's all kinds of yeah. stuff and you know he pulled me aside at the end and right before the rap party and stuff and said look man you're you're really good at this. You're legit. You're one of the best TPs I've ever worked with. And he's just not the kind of guy that just throws this stuff out there for no reason. And he had no reason to do that to me. So I don't know, just a real, real shot in the arm confidence wise. Good. So yeah, hopefully he brought some of that back to our world. Um, But it's also, it also kicks your ass in a way that kind of humbles you. So at, at the same time, it's sort of, Gives you a boost of confidence. It gives you a, while also humbling a you. real taste of humility as well. Yeah, and a, and a real sense of like what I think I got a sense of like that teamwork side of production, like what it really takes, and how to how to be a part of that team, and 
yeah, just really appreciate every everybody on a set and the role they're playing. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you got to do that, and I'm glad that you know after saying you'd you'd never been on a set when you started a production company to go and see how <laughs> see what other people were doing. It probably did give some I still a little bit of insight. It. I still haven't gone. I mean, it was my set, right? It was so yeah. still even that. I think <laughs> there's probably a lot of people there acting just like you. Like, what is this guy doing? Well, oh, I, we got it done. I will say that I, that you know, I, go, I I joke with you all the time about you know disagreeing with you and all that, and I, and I've just gotten to a point where I trust you so much because I know that you're a great mind, and that you you have a very interesting way of thinking about things and thinking about problems and. Uh, you you usually turn out right when you and I uh, get <laughs> get in an argument about something uh, once or twice. It works both ways, no doubt. I have to be the dissenter. Yeah, <laughs> that's healthy, man. It's yeah. really healthy. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for for coming and doing this. I'm really grateful for yeah. everything that you've done for me, uh, including sitting down right here. Likewise. Thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yep. All right, guys. Brian Allen. What a sweet man. Love the guy. I appreciate him. I'm grateful to know him. Guys, thanks again for listening. I appreciate it a lot. I hope everybody's staying well out there and staying good, staying positive, uh, being happy, uh, learning some new things. Um, engage with me on social media. Hit me up at South of Scruffy on Instagram. Send me an email, southofscruffy at gmail.com. I would love to hear from some more of you guys. And uh, hit me up if you want any merch. I might be able to drop you a coffee mug or two here before I run out. I'm getting low. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. One more thing. I want to thank Sam Thomas and Mike Deering, both of who have mixed a number of these episodes for me. They're wonderful individuals, and I want to thank them uh, for their continued support of the podcast and their excellent work as I move forward with this venture. So thank you, guys. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Matt Honkinen. Let me out!